0: Hey, hey, what's up? Welcome to the 30th episode of Two Writers Sling and Yang. My name is Jeff Perlman. I'm a former Sports Illustrated senior writer, former ESPN columnist, author of multiple New York Times bestsellers, and the columnist for The Athletic. The music you're listening to is Croissant Master by the great MC Whiteout, And this podcast is an ode to writing in all its forms. From journalism, to songwriting, to screenwriting, to novels, to romance, to comics, to whatever I'm thinking of. And today's guest is Joel Anderson, the ESPN.com senior writer, former BuzzFeed news writer, and a man who has done some absolutely extraordinary work in his career. Specifically, I want to talk with Joel about his long-form masterpieces. One, "On Michael Sam and his father wound up in the 2015 Best American Sports Writing, Another about the bleak hometown of Earl Thomas of the Seattle Seahawks that was written earlier this year for ESPN.com will probably end up in the book as well. So let's go long and deep right now on two writers, Sling and Yang. Joel, Jeff, you
1: are my. So you know, as I told you, I you know I like giving behind the scenes uh, secrets here. So um, yeah. This is my first time recording using anchor as opposed to bumpers. And usually with bumpers, there's this long hey, what's going on, blah, 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 blah. But we can't actually do that because we're oh. into the podcast. So we're just gonna have to uh we're just gonna have to
2: talk without jabbering. Are you comfortable uh, with it? Are you comfortable? Yeah. I, I although I am really good at small talk, I'm willing to forego it uh, you know, for this for this voyage here, this maiden voyage on Yeah, AM. I appreciate that. I appreciate yeah. that. Well, um, you know one thing I love about
1: doing this podcast, or I've loved so far, is that it introduces me to a lot of writers that I weren't super familiar with. And I have to say, in all in all transparency, yeah. um, I was I was sort of midway through recording episodes, and a friend of mine named Miren Fader, who's a young writer for Bleacher Report, very good writer, said, "You should have Joe Anderson on." And oh. I was like, "Wow, who's Joe Anderson?" And she said, <laughs> writer blah blah blah. And then I started reading. It. I'm like, "Oh my god, this is great!" So. Oh. Um, Wow, if that's like an insult. That's an insult compliment right there because I didn't know who you were, <laughs> but now I'm I'm probably one of your biggest fans. So there
2: you go. Oh um, man, I mean, I think it's uh, that's uh, who the hell I am uh at this point, and yeah, I never, I never expected anybody know. I mean, I know that. I'm writing and I'm writing for you know, like ESPN now, but sometimes you just forget that anybody knows who the hell you are or that he, anybody even bothers to pay attention to a byline. So, right. That'd be funny um, if I had the wrong Joel Anderson and you're actually like Joel Anderson, CPA, Connecticut yeah. CPA. Or, or, or Joel Anderson, the uh, California state senator, uh, <laughs> who, who is the most famous uh, Joel Anderson on Google. Yeah, well, until, until this podcast. Yeah, right, right, right. It's at least yeah. number two. So, so
1: I want to jump <laughs> in here. I want to jump in with um, it's very interesting. You write for ESPN uh, and ESPN.com, ESPN the magazine, and but until somewhat recently, you were writing for BuzzFeed News. And yeah. I'm reading the stuff you did for BuzzFeed News, I'm like, Jesus, this is I'm, I'm, I'm almost like this is the job I want to have, right? For oh. example, there's a piece you wrote in, in April of this year: a Georgia grandmother faced charges after she helped a black voter, and. It's a fascinating, Mm -hmm. fascinating piece about there was a a woman named Dioana Robinson, who she was in Georgia, and she went to the local board of elections in Douglas, Georgia, to vote. Mm -hmm. And she's standing in front of a voting machine, and she doesn't know how to use it. And this woman, Mm -hmm. Olivia Pearson, who is a local civil rights activist and a longtime city commissioner, sort of comes to help her, doesn't tell her who to vote for, just says, I see you're confused with the machine. Here's how you use it. And um, she ends up getting charged with a crime. Yeah, that I mean, I, I guess I'm leading you in here. That seems like an insanely fascinating, riveting and sort of rewarding kind of story to work on. Or am I re- am I misreading?
2: No, it, absolutely. Um, and it was a story I kind of came across by happenstance. Um, I, so last year um, I was just I had a lot of self-loathing because I just felt like I had not contributed enough to the mission. And, you know, we're in the most pivotal election of our, you know, at least of my lifetime, uh, at at this point, and I was like, man, I would like to write something. I want to do something, and so I said, well, you know, I don't see a lot of people talking about voter ID because, you, I mean, you know, what election coverage is typically like—it's about the horse race and all that, and about the personalities involved. Um, so I said, well, you know, look, what can I add to voter ID? And so I had to sort of drill down and figure out, like, okay, where is a state where you know they've. They're really cracking down on voter fraud or, you know, they're, um, you know, prosecuting people for that or, you know, there's these, you know, unduly restrictive laws that are preventing people from voting. And so I call it, you know, a few places that, you know, nonprofits and organizations that deal or deal with those issues. And I mean, man, I, I can't re- I can't remember exactly, but it was somebody that they, they organization uh, that works in the Southeast United States. And they were like, Hey man, there's somebody, this is woman that's going through a really tough time. Nobody's written about it. Uh, maybe you should check it out. And that's actually how I got led to Olivia Pearson. And yeah, it's just like, really, it was exactly the side of it. It was exactly the sort of election story that I would want to write. Um, and how it might affect, you know, the voting, you know, going into that election and, and then how it affected her life afterward, which is the story you're th- you're talking about, the one from April, mm-hmm. uh, which is what where she actually went on trial. So, yeah.
1: And do you, when you're reporting a story like that, so here mm-hmm. you are, uh, you're a, a man in America, mm-hmm. you're African-American, mm-hmm. um, you've seen sort of how the justice system tends to work. Um, yeah. How do you report a story like that and not let your what I imagine must be some sort of outrage and a little bit of dumbfoundedness over how this is even happening how do you not let that affect your reporting or is it okay for that to sort of affect your reporting
2: well that's a good question um I feel like I am writing for people that are just sort of like well you know what I, I kind of want to hear, you know, what happened here. People that are willing, like, I just, I feel like I'm not going to reach people that uh, in, in a story like that, that believe that voter fraud is like this massive, urgent issue in American politics. So I'm just like, wh- what about the person that like, you can distill it down to a single person. Um, and so like when you're doing that, you have to be not detached because you can never truly detach yourself But I'm just like, well, I have to make the case that this is worth their time and that this is something that they should be concerned about. And so although I spend a lot of my day outraged uh, about various things, um, particularly when I'm going to work, I have to sort of um, subdue that a little bit and just say, hey, well, look, I'm you know, I'm an attorney in a way or, you know, I have to be sort of analytical about how I can get people um, interested in the story and to hear me out and see, did I make a case? Do you think that? Do you think that I I made a case that Olivia Pearson um, is somebody that you know did not did not intentionally try to defraud the state of Georgia by helping people vote? Um, and so yeah, so I, I think that's kind of have to have to go at it because um, you know. It, it, to do that, to, to do this sort of work, you know, I know that people are going to be skeptical of me. You know, like you said, I'm black, you know, um, i uh, oftentimes the issues I write are erasing racism are at the center of them. And so people are not going to give me the shake at, at writing on this stuff that they would some other reporters, you know, tend to be white. No. going to say, well, Joel, Joel is coming in here biased. He's got an opinion on this stuff. And I do. But I also feel like if you look at my stories, um, I think it would be difficult for people to say, hey, look, uh, he didn't really, really report this out and, and do the best that he could to be fair uh, on, to both sides of the story. You know, it's kind of crazy. Um,
1: I've covered sports. I, I graduated college in 94, so I've been covering sports for a long time and, and covering other things. And there is definitely a weird stigma that is attached to black especially male reporters and actually also in sports and women in mm-hmm. locker rooms where I've heard far too many white reporters complain that they have an advantage. For example, cool. well, he's black and the guy he's interviewing is black, or she's a young woman and she's 25 and she's pretty. So clearly he's going to talk to her. And I always think like nobody ever talks about the advantage I have, With 98% of society, you know, like (laughs) no one ever says, wow, you're an advantage because you're a white guy. And that guy's a white guy. (laughs) That stuff drives me absolutely insane. It's such a preposterous, you know, in a way, I I think it comes with a lot of, I think it comes with a lot of weight. And sort of like you said, like there's an expectation, totally unfair, but there's an expectation simply because of your race that you're going to be biased in a certain way to the story. And therefore that probably makes you even far more aware of that and probably carry that weight more than I ever would.
2: Yeah, I mean, without without you know speaking to the sort of burden that you might have to feel when you go into work personally, right? But yeah, um, you know, a lot of times I go into situations, and um, the way that I actually think about it is in reverse, like because I my primary beat at this point is college football, and it's not to you know cover X's and O's and you know talk about what Chip Kelly is going to do to revamp the UCLA offense or program or whatever. It's to take you know sort of big picture issues and distill them into like a digestible story um so I, a lot of times i go places you know i'm in press boxes i'm in um media conferences and you know just as a black man you just sort of you become aware that oh wow like i'm the only black person here <laughs> right. you know right and i'm like you know so uh, if i'm trying to make sources with agents coaches athletic administrators um i, I <laughs> you know the, the the fact of the matter is a lot of times I just don't get I'm not able to get into those spaces in the same way that white male reporters are and, you know people tend to forget that they look at they look at me because I'm unique and I you know i' I'm distinct when I come in there and then, yeah maybe sometimes a player may be a little bit more comfortable with me or you know David Shaw might be a little bit more willing you know he, he may perk up a little bit if i if I show up and I ask him a question right but um, on the whole yeah I, I, you know the business is not set up for me to get in there and get the same sort of advantages and I'm sure women would would tell you much the same thing about going into a locker room. I mean, hell, I, I in an NFL locker room in years until I went to the Seahawks locker room um, maybe a couple months ago, mm-hmm. and I was just like, dude, man, I was just like, you know, just, I'm just, I was trying to picture like being a woman walking into this and how uncomfortable it may make them feel. I'm just like, you know, you don't know how people are going to regard you. You know, it's a really sensitive uh, space within a professional, you know, within professional sports and there's just all these other issues going on. And I'm just like, well, shit, man. I mean, what... <laughs> I mean being a pretty girl, I, I guess it's good. But I don't know that that's how you want to approach your work. I don't know if that's how you want your work to be boiled down to. That, okay, I'm a pretty girl. I'm going to get this story because that could, that could totally, you know, <laughs> go in all sorts of other directions, you know?
1: Yeah, well, I also think, like, to me, when I've entered locker rooms, I kind of want to be invisible, like, I don't want yes. to be it as the tall guy, the short guy, the black guy, the woman. <laughs> yeah. I just want to be invisible and be able to walk up to your locker and make my introduction. That's it. Yes.
2: Yeah. 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 It's so awkward in there. Like, I was just like, yeah. God, this is really tough. I, I remember thinking, I was like, I know that I don't want less access. Like, I think more access is better uh, as a reporter and journalist. But like, I wish there was some other way that we could do this where that we're not here. <laughs> you know? Oh, yeah. like. If, if they would just bring them out and we could talk to them afterward, or, you know, there was some sort of guarantee that we would get the same amount of time because I just Wait, don't want to be in ask there. This. I want to throw this out because I haven't actually done this
1: with anyone. So I'm just, this is totally I wasn't planning on this.
0: Right.
1: Describe to me why you hate the locker. I hate the locker. I mean, oh, I, yeah. why? But I feel like a lot of people, a lot of listeners, if they're if they're not reporters and they're not in sports, don't understand why we recoil. At the, oh. and he's, people Because fans are like, oh, man, you get to see David, right? It's like, trust me, it's
2: not what you think. <laughs> yeah, right. No, I mean, beyond the obvious, that people are walking around in their naked, right? And you're, like, trying to avert your eyes, don't want to stare in one direction, you know, for too long. You're just trying to be like, you don't want to be weird, you know? It's <laughs> like, hey, right. I'm just here to do work. I promise, you know, I don't, you know, I'm not taking pictures. I'm not, you know, gawking at you. Um, there's nowhere to sit for one, I mean, there's another thing, you know, you just, so you're just standing there and you're hoping that the person or the people that you're trying to talk to are going to show up and that they're going to, you know, be there and they're going to be dressed and they're going to be in a good mood. Cause there's not even any guarantee of that. So right. it's a really informal atmosphere. You, you're, you're waiting on somebody and you got to wait for them to put their clothes on. Um, and, and then, yeah, you don't know if they're going to be in a good mood and I guess it'd be akin to like going to somebody's, <sighs> i guess it's somebody's bedroom and doing an interview and they're just like hey look uh you know just sit on the bed it's fine uh you got five minutes right. <laughs> yeah you don't mind i've got pajamas on i'm going to put on some underwear and you know get ready for the day here I just you know make this quick um it's it's awkward like i don't know what i mean you've been in thousands of these things i mean and i think baseball clubhouses are like the worst of these mm. but like uh I mean surely it, i mean yeah it's got to have been horrible for you right Oh my God. I had one. I was covering the Seattle
1: Mariners years ago, and I was, uh, they had a relief pitcher named Ryan Franklin, and his locker was next to another reliever named Arthur Rhodes. And Ryan Fra- Arthur Rhodes wasn't around, and Ryan Franklin said, Have a seat. So I was oh, sitting God. In Arthur, <laughs> I'm sitting in Arthur Rhodes' chair. And oh, no. five minutes in, Arthur Rhodes is walking across the locker room. He's way on the other side of the locker room, and he goes, yeah. You out of my chair. <laughs> he, wasn't he wasn't even using the chair. Like it felt like he was walking over to his chair. And Ryan Frankman just looks at me and is like, "I don't know what to tell you, man." I mean, it was so humiliating.
2: <laughs> Why didn't he say so? Well, he like, "Hey, man, I said it was okay." Like that's where the point where Ryan Frankman came in and said, "Hey, man, that's never it was do. cool." Yeah, right. Never right. do. They right, never right. Do. right. He set um, you up, man.
1: I know. So, um, you alluded to being in Seattle. So the story that is number one, twin to the top, uh, pin, pin, not pin, uh, <laughs> pin to the top of your Twitter page. Um, is a piece you wrote for ESPN.com. Earl Thomas is a favorite son of a troubled Texas town, mm-hmm. um, which came out a couple months ago. It's appeared in ESPN, the magazine. And I had a few interesting thoughts about the story, which I very much enjoyed. Um, yeah. First, I'll, I'll read the lead real quick, which is um, just outside of Seattle, uh, way, up near, near, uh, way up near the forested snow frost peak of Cougar mountain, Earl, oh, the frost, oh, mm-hmm. forested snow mm-hmm. park, uh, snow frosted peak of Cougar mountain. Earl Thomas III stepped out onto the front yard of his 12 million Six-bedroom home on a chilly November afternoon.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Even today, eight seasons into a, t- a career with the Seahawks that seems destined for e- NFL immortality, Thomas can barely believe he has made it all the way up, almost literally, to the top of the mountain. I was just standing out there, He calls one, one recent morning, and I'm like, man, I'm in the mountains. I'm so blessed. And it's a really fascinating story about where he comes from, this small kind of racist Texas town, and now mm-hmm. he's here in the Seahawks. But I was thinking when I was reading this story, mm-hmm. I couldn't tell if Earl Thomas was very much help to you and my guess was he wasn't or am i wrong
2: no you're right um, <laughs> earl like i mean earl thomas was the very last interview i did and i didn't think it was going to happen and he had, i you know, i flew up to seattle for basically one or two days uh, cuz i'd spent most of my time in orange texas um you know with his family and talking to people there and um there was just not a sense that earl was going to help and then finally you know, the, the folks with the Seahawks, they said, OK, it's cool. You know, you can meet him after practice on Friday and, you know, he's ready to do it. You'll get 20 minutes. And I'm just like, all right. But, you know, so like I'm flying from Houston to Seattle for 20 minutes after practice, which uh, is which, <laughs> a journalist you're hoping is 30 to 40. Yeah, right. I'm just like, well, maybe I can like, you know, make him like I'm from Texas, too. We know some of the, you know, same landmarks, you know, maybe we know some of the same coaches. Like maybe I can stretch this to an hour. So um, I get there, and they're like, oh, man, sorry to tell you, Earl left early. Oh, we don't know where he is or what's going on. And they say, you know, just, just hang out here for, for a little bit. Maybe he'll come back. Two or three hours later, the Seahawks dude is like, yeah, man, I'm sorry. Earl just totally forgot he's got something else to do now. And, you know, maybe you could get him tomorrow. And my flight was scheduled to leave, like, you know, like that evening. So I'm just like, well, shoot, man. So I I had to reschedule my flight for the next day. I show up again that morning, Saturday morning, and he bailed on me again. And (laughs) I was just like, oh, God, like, this is just not going to happen. But the ace in my hole was that I had contacted his mother. And I just said, well, it doesn't look like it's going to happen. And she's like, oh, really? What's going on? Blah, blah, blah. And so then, you know, a couple hours later, they're like, okay, Earl says you can come up to his house. Um, it's close to the practice, and um, you know you'll get some time with him there. And I'm just like, what? And I mean, obviously, I suspected that his mother had done that, but I didn't confirm it until after the interview. Um, mm-hmm. So anyway, I get there. Wait, well, you and drove to his house? I drove to his house from the Seahawks facility. Uh, so I think the the, the the practice facility is in Renton, and okay. his house is like near Bellevue, um, it, or it is in Bellevue, but like on top of cougar mountain it's like a 15 minute drive it's not that bad um and so yeah i get there he opens the door and lets me in and we, we he didn't like his wife is in there his like i think three or four year old daughter's in there his mother-in-law's in there he just walks me right past them doesn't even introduce me he's just like all right come on we're going upstairs we go upstairs to his uh what he calls his man cave which is you know huge tv Big chairs, lots of signed jerseys, you know, Brandon Marshall, you know, uh, Jamal Charles, all these dudes. And so he sits at one end of the couch. I sit at the other. And I actually was able to stretch it out for an hour. And he was not, he was not bad when I got him, right? Like, but it was just that hour. And I never got a sense that I knew who he was as a person. or You know, it, we didn't get close. I, w- I would never pretend that, like, we got close or anything. Um, um, but that hour was better than I thought. And I was just like, well, man, I actually got inside this dude's house, which, you know, the Seahawks folks say never happens. Um, and I was like, well, I, you know, this is this is. I've got the lead with this because like, this is the action. This is something new. And it sort of t- it showed showed the difference, even though he didn't tell me a lot. Um, it shows the difference, at least um, in the distance that he made from from orange texas to seattle which i mean you know you probably couldn't find two more different places in this country than those two right there so this is this might be a weird question but um Hmm. does it say anything to you as
1: a writer and as an observer or chronicler or whatever you want to call yourself um you enter his house and he doesn't introduce you to anyone and does i don't know does that does that say
2: anything to you yeah well think it's a testament to how guarded he is right and you know i also think that he sort of is man i don't want to be a psychologist but i just sort of think that um a lot of his life has been about him you know that you know he is the gravitational force for for, even orange now Not, not not just his family but orange so when people go there they're looking to talk to him um they're writing about him it's all about him and his brother worked for him you know he funds a lot of what his parents do you re- you know he retired his parents he you know does a lot of things for the town you read the story um so i i could totally see him being like well you're here to talk to me like what you know like, right. you're not you're not here to get to know my family like i've done all this this is about me um and yeah also i'm i don't want you talking to my wife I don't want you talking to my kids like that you know you've already talked to my my parents like why you know why would i why would I do that? Like, it, it was clear that we were not going to it was it was always going to feel like, um, you know, just sort of a professional inter- interaction. Like we, we, it, we were never going to get anything approaching friendly because I tried that a couple of times. Like we're we're sitting at his house. You know, he goes to the University of Texas. I'm from uh, I went to college at Texas Christian University. That day, UT was playing TCU. And I just tried to make a little joke about it. And he's like, yeah, bro, I'm going to watch that game. Like, you know, it was it. He, <laughs> <laughs> he just, just kind of died there. I was like, OK, well, I guess uh, he doesn't want to have small talk either. So yeah, I, we, 20 we, years of
1: journalism, I can translate that to shut up and ask me the questions you have to ask me.
2: Right. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. And it was like, no, like, I, I had the questions I wanted to ask him. And I tried you know, to stretch it out a little bit. But, like, there was never going to be a chance that we were just going to, like, oh, you know this person, you from here, or, yeah, I know this person, blah, blah, blah. It was never going to be that. Not, I, I can respect that. Like, you know, there he had nothing to gain by talking to me, and I try to remember that all the time when I talk to people. For the most part, most people have nothing to gain by talking to me. So um, I just try to respect that, at least, you know? Do you feel like his
1: um, sort of, not cold shoulder, but his sort of limited interest in the story impacted the story one way or another, Like, Thea giving you five hours and toured you around Texas, is it a completely different and better? I mean, I think it's an excellent story, so it's not oh, a criticism. Right. Do, you, do you feel like it could have been a better story? Do you like how the story came out? Do you um, feel like in it?
2: Uh, you know, yeah, I, I would have liked for him to have talked with me a little bit more and, and like, hey, look, I want you to talk to this person. and um, You know, like here's my, here's wife.
1: Here's my wife. Yeah,
2: here's my wife. You know, she moved to Orange from New Orleans after Katrina, and I met her then, and um, you know, she could talk a little bit about like how Orange helped save her family and you know um, gave them a second life or any of that stuff. But like that just didn't happen. And so yeah, I do think that, um, I do think that there was some holes in it. And um, I mean, there's there's a couple of things in that. One, he said some things about Orange that I didn't expect him to say. Like I didn't expect him to say, Orange place." Like you know, usually people are a lot more um, defensive about where they come from, especially somebody like him who's poured so much time and resources into it. Right. But he was very circumspect. He's like, no, nah, you know, I'm not raising my family there. I don't, th- his parents didn't know that. His parents did not know that he felt that way. Um, and, uh, I, I, in a way, as I look back on it and I look at how the rest of his season is gone, I thought that he may have used that interview as a way to let people know, Hey, I'm pulling back now. Um, you know, I, I think that, you know, I've done a lot for people, but, you know, this is my way of letting you know that, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm sort of moving forward. You can just see, I mean, the last week, you know, he, you know, yeah. he, you know walked up to the, uh, you know, Jason Garrett and said, hey, come get me. Like, it's just the things that he's doing this year. It just, that interview, if you, if you had been there for that interview, what he did with Jason Garrett after that game would make a little bit more sense, you know, so.
1: Do you feel like these guys are aware, like Earl Thomas, um mm-hmm. you said he, he didn't he didn't need you, you needed him, which is true. Um, uh-huh. the trophy room with the frame jerseys, the sort of mm-hmm. I am the center of the universe sort of thing that so many athletes and celebrities i've interviewed over the years mm-hmm. across all spectrums carry with them um do you feel like these guys are prepared for life after sports?
2: oh man um no, but how could anybody be you know um I mean, I was a nobody um you know I played college football very briefly and poorly and um, you know you spent a lot of your life like growing up I mean someone like Earl Thomas who's you know closing in on 30 um, and would have spent you know what two-thirds four-fifths of his life playing football and people and you know making sure that you know he focuses on that and hones that craft and that's how he's known he goes into town his jerseys and you know local restaurants and have an earl thomas day and so like when that focus is off of you i don't know how like how you find another identity or even like other interests like because you you really don't have a lot of time if professional football or any professional sport is your you know your, your the way you're moving through the world like i mean how do you have time to find out hey you know also maybe i want I'm interested in uh being a geologist, or, you know. I would like to be a, you know, I'd like to go back to school and finish this. Like some guys are like that. A lot of guys are like that. But if you're somebody like Earl Thomas, like how much time could you actually to be as good as he is at that sport? You just there probably isn't a lot of time for like this is this is what else I want to do right. um when this is over or 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 a, or a sense of how it actually will be when it's over because it it, it probably feels a lot different than those guys think it's going to feel, you know, um, retirement. I mean, yeah, one
1: of my favorite, um, one of my or most memorable moments from, from different books is uh, I interviewed a guy, Dallas Cowboys used to have a defensive back named Clayton Holmes. And when he was with mm-hmm. the Cowboys, he was in a bar with Tony Dorsett. And mm-hmm. someone offered to buy Clayton Holmes a drink, a stranger. And, mm. and Clayton Holmes said, no, nah, don't worry about it. And Tony Dorsett turns to him and says, never turn it down a drink because they're going to forget you sooner than you think. And I was wow. like, You know, like, Earl Thomas is Kenny Easley. Most people would not recognize Kenny Easley walking around. Yeah. You know, and they do forget you. And I just think it's an interesting – I am fascinated by the evolution that athletes have to go through from being athletes to not being athletes because I think it's one of the hardest falls we witness as people. Oh,
2: Oh, yeah. I mean, like most of these guys, I mean, there are a few, right, that is sort sure. of like the string it out, right? And they they can be who they are forever. Uh, well, not who they are forever, but like a version of that. And people, You can be Harold them. Reynolds
1: and have a great career in broadcasting and basically get relatively the same high you had
2: playing for the Seattle Mariners. But that does not happen very often. Yeah, right. And I, oh, I, and I think about guys like I'm, even though their lives are like notoriously hard and, you know, they, they're suffering uh, in their post-career. Lives, but like Herschel Walker is Hers- is still Herschel Walker. Right. Like that name means something to a lot of people, even though his life is difficult. And he go he can go anywhere and get recognized, and people will sort of fawn over him. But like that's probably not happening for Garrison Hurst, You know? Ah, or, good. Uh, yeah, hundred
1: yeah. percent. And you know what's funny? Yeah. I did a story recently for the Athletic about Thomas Jones, the former Jets halfback. And oh, um, man, yeah. Thomas Jones ran for more than ten thousand yards in his <laughs> career. Uh, he played in the Super Bowl. He was a Pro Bowler. If mm-hmm. his name, he's re- he's remembered by almost no one. If his name were Thaddeus McDougal, I <laughs> would yeah. be like, holy cow, it's Thaddeus McDougal, I mean, right? So like Herschel Walker. I think there's something
2: just about the name Herschel Walker that people remember in and of itself. Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, man, yeah. I you know it's, it's funny because I I don't even think of Thomas Jones as the famous Jones brother. I thought I don't know why I think Julius Jones is the more famous <laughs> Jones brother. Like stats don't even hold that up, but yeah, like. Most of the, it, it helps if like, I mean, Jalen Rose, you know, like that's a guy that you'll remember right. forever. Um, and I, I think that does help. Like you just have like a little bit of a personality and a name and it just sort of resonates with people forever. But yeah, like Earl Thomas, um, right? you know, J- uh, Michael Griffin, you know, guys like that, like, you know, they're just, right. they were great. And, you know, then they'll just fade into anonymity and they won't even be able to really trade on their names in the same way when it's all over because of that, you know, because of that sort of anonymity. Right. Yeah. So. It's weird. Um, you wrote another story
1: that I absolutely love, and it got you in the, the best American sports writing results for BuzzFeed. Uh, oh. The two Michael Sams. Mm-hmm. Uh, Michael Sam Jr. doesn't talk to his father. This is the, the, uh, the subhead. Michael mm-hmm. Sam Jr. doesn't talk to his father who's been caricatured in the press as an anti-gay man who abandoned his family. But there's mm-hmm. a lot more to the story. It's a riveting, riveting sad story by Mike, Michael Sam's dad who lives in sort of an assisted living nursing home type facility. He's only in his 50s. He's clearly beaten down by life and, and kind of set aside. And um, what made you write it?
2: Man, you know, um, originally we, when I was at BuzzFeed, we were hot. We were really, really trying to like write a story about the first out gay football player. Like we knew that that was a story that was going to be big. We have uh, at that time, you know, BuzzFeed news was really um, LGBT news was like a big, emphasis of our company and so they're like hey look we really want you to be on this beat and to try to develop it and get stuff on it and i was like all right cool you know and uh so we got a tip that there was going to be a football player that was going to come out um um or you know announce that he was gay and we just barely missed out on that the espn and new- the new york times okay and so and so because of that we were just like crap like you know we maybe we reported it maybe like an hour after they did like we had the name we we were just waiting to get confirmation on it um so anyway as a result like we just sort of followed the coverage after that i was like we're going to come back to this we're going to take a bite at that apple at some point and um you know i I think what sort of crystallized was that when he got drafted and you know espn was there with him and um he's celebrating with his family we know not with his family he was celebrating with some people. And his boyfriend at the time and they're all in this room and i was just like yo there are no black people in that room like where, where is his family so interesting. I was, and and so I, I mentioned that to my editor at the time and he was like oh well i think that's our story like we, what has happened to michael sam's family where are they and he talked about how difficult it was and so that's just sort of what made us look into it at that point all Right. so how do you find the dad how do you go about it um, it's crazy. So, you know, I think I, mean, I mentioned and I, I'll, you know, if you know me, you know, for three minutes, I'll tell you that I'm from Houston, Texas. Um, and so um, we just said, well, you know what, let's go down to his hometown and let's figure out, you know, like what's going on with him. And so Houston is like, mm, maybe 45, 50 minutes away from Hitchcock. So uh, I drove down from New York to Houston, basically packed up my bags. And I was like, well, I'm going to, you know, maybe I'll get three weeks to a month on this story. Um, and I, you know, I won't have to pay for a hotel. So, you know, the company won't complain too much. And so anyway, I just kind of started knocking on doors. And, uh, you know, I, I did a little research, found out that his um was originally from Lamarck, Texas, which was, you know, sort of close uh, to Hitchcock. It's just right across the freeway from it. And so I was just driving around, talking to people where his, whole, you know, found out where his old family home was and just started talking to people in the streets there. And they were like, hey, um, you know, I know his, I know his, uh, I know Michael Sam's aunt and she turned out to um I think she was the first black female mayor. of that. She invited me in. We talked to her and I talked to her and she's like, Hey, I don't think that, you know, Mike's dad is going to talk to you. Like, I just, I really don't. He he felt really burnt by some of these other interviews and, um, you know, but you can try. So um, I, I, I don't, I don't, I, at that point, it gets kind of murky. I can't remember, but um, I, I found out that he was living at that assisted home in dallas and so i stopped by his brother's place which is also in dallas and he's like hey man um let's go on over let's go see mike right now And i was like oh great cool
1: well let's do this are you nervous when this happens is, is there any anxiety in you when you're driving
2: oh oh yeah. all the time yeah like i'm nervous the entire time like i'm because i mean you're just like how are people going to receive me like what is you know what's going to i'm knocking on people's doors which is a sort of you know, um, weird in and of itself. Like I don't, I don't, I don't know about you. I don't answer my door t- typically, especially if I don't know who it is. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, anyway, I'm knocking on doors, and people are just welcoming me in and and, and giving me a chance to make the case. And so, his brother welcomed me in, and we sat down and talked for an hour and had a lot in common. It was just very friendly and really cool. And he's just like, "Hey, well, shoot, you want to go see Mike? Let's go see Mike." And uh, he called. He made the mistake of calling Mike before we went over. Yeah. And he was like, "No, nah, I'm not doing that." But anyway, he said, the the brother was like, well, you know what? If you go over there and you bring him a bowl of gumbo, I bet he'll talk to you. (laughs) That's (laughs) easy Uh, enough. Yeah. Yeah. So the next day I went and got some gumbo, just walked right into the the nursing facility. Like nobody stopped me. I just went like I knew where I was going Mm -hmm. and went to his room and sat down. And he, you know, maybe for the first hour, he's like, who are you? What what is this about again? Um, I think he was under the influence of whatever painkillers Mm -hmm. or drugs he he, uh, he needed for his condition and just kind of let it, you know, let him clear his head. And um, he, he napped for a little bit. So that just went on for like three hours. And finally, you know, when he was up and ready to go, um, he, we talked for a little bit and I just kept going back. I just kept going back um, day after day after day. And that story from conception to finish probably took about six months. Whoa. So Yeah. Wow. Now
1: do you, I mean, one thing I find interesting in this career, I've brought this up on past podcasts, is I always, as I get older, especially, I am increasingly nervous about quote unquote taking advantage of people.
0: Um, yeah. Meaning, here's this
1: guy, he doesn't have much money. His son mm-hmm. got, got drafted. You want him to talk, you bring him the gumbo. Cause you, I, I would do the same thing because you know it's yeah. kind of your case. <laughs> is there a line that you cannot cross um, when trying to get someone to open up to you? Or is it, just a free-for-all and you can do whatever the hell you want.
2: Man, you know, that's a good question. I mean, you have to kind of take it on a case-by-case basis, right? Um, What I told Mr. Sam was that, you know, I think – and I told the family. I was like, I don't know if anybody actually knows who you are beyond these quotes where you talked about that, you know, you don't – you know, you hope that your son – that you had a difficult time accepting that your son was gay – and all this other stuff, like you know I don't know if anybody knows anything about you beyond that or the or, or the sort of father that you were to him, like you know nobody knows like Michael clearly is an exceptional young man that didn't come from nothing. um what role did you play in it, and I was like, you know this is your chance to tell your story. I was like, somebody is going to tell this story um you should you know let me make the case that it should be me, yeah. and I said nobody's going to care about it like i am i mean i'm from I'm from this area um you know, I know a lot of the people that you guys know. Um, I'm going to be very careful with this, um, and I'm going to spend the time. I was like, I have the time and I have the resources um, to do this. And so, you know, you know, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna force anybody to talk. But I'm just gonna like, if you keep talking, um, I think that you know, this can be sort of a, a interesting story. And you know, it, it is with anything. You know, they felt that they had been boxed out. You know, they felt that um, that the national media had been unfair to them and, you know, Michael had sort of cast them as like these rubes and homophobes and bigots and, you know, that he was saved, um, you know, um, when he went off to college and moved away. And so, you know, through their resentment, I think they helped to tell that story. And even as they're telling that story, I'm like, you know, Michael, you know, has his version of events too, and he's entitled to that. But I just thought that it would help to tell little bit more of a fuller story um so yeah I, I think you originally asked like what's the line um I, I don't know it's hard for me to say what it is but I didn't feel like I was taking advantage of them sometimes I, I'm, I'm trying to think of a time where I've been in that situation and generally you just tend not to if you're a bad reporter that'll come across right or if you if you're, if your editors don't help you if the the, the story conception is bad it'll it'll become clear that you took advantage of somebody um, that thankfully I've had good editing and people to help me. And I try to, you know, especially if a story I'm not as familiar with, or I feel a little um, weird about um, I try to get help from people I trust um, to walk me through it so that I'm not like burning people, you know, because I yeah, actually, um,
1: yeah. actually, I feel like in my career, I had one instance where I really, I was a young writer. I was at sports illustrated and I was trying to figure out what the hell happened to Josh Hamilton, who at the time, oh, man. he was a Rays prospect, and he kind of vanished. And mm-hmm. the Rays weren't talking, the Rays weren't talking. So I went down to interview the GM of the, of the Rays and a bunch of people, and I told them all I was doing a story about the, the Rays' young outfielders. And the, mm-hmm. the better is, I was doing a story about one of the Rays' young outfielders <laughs> was there, and I was trying to figure out why. And I feel like. I was haunted by that for a long time because I, mm. I lied. I was full of shit. I wasn't doing a story about the young Alfiores. I was doing a story about Josh Hamilton, and years later I apologized to the PR guy because I just I, looked, I was probably twenty six, and oh, just man. like so desperate to kind of make it and make a name for myself that I mm. crossed a line that I feel like I really shouldn't have crossed, and I hate that I did
2: that, you know. So. Yeah. No man, not, but, I mean, and you and you wrote about. I mean, obviously everybody knows about the John Rocker thing. Yeah. But you wrote about that like afterward too about how you you felt about um, what that story made him out to be and like what it did for your career. Right. Like, I mean, that was something you sort of grappled with as well. Oh
1: yeah. Well, I just hate, I don't like the idea of um, number one. I don't like becoming part of the story. And like, that was a profile of John Rocker. That's why I was sent there. It wasn't about the reporter who wrote about John Rocker. And then number two, I always hated, I hated that he was suspended because of that, because I thought, yeah, he's awful. But if you're going to insist that these guys give access to the media, they're not all going to share my views. They're just not right. And some of these right. guys are from Macon, Georgia, and they're white guys from Macon, Georgia. And, they're <laughs> and I don't I'm not saying it's cool, but if you suspend everyone who doesn't share your beliefs or doesn't use the words that you choose, you're going to be suspending a lot of guys if they're open about themselves. So mm-hmm. I just I thought the punishment for him should have been the public humiliation of being a racist. I thought, yeah, you know, so.
2: Yeah, no, I totally get that. Yeah, like, you don't want to intercede in such a way that it, if any, even if it's somebody you don't necessarily like or agree with, I'm not writing about them to burn them or ruin their lives. Because it's like, they're doing me a favor. Like, they're welcoming me into their lives. Like, it's really intimate. Most people don't have anybody come into their lives and ask them questions about their life. So that's like a real... It's a real intimate transaction. And so no matter who you're writing about, like, you just don't want to leave them worse off than you were. I mean, yeah, I mean unless, <laughs> you know, they're running some sort of, like, pedophilia ring or something, right? But, like, that's, it's, that's, it's, that's really it, not it's happening.
1: Too? It's kind of a catch-22 mm-hmm. because you're writing – all right, mm-hmm. so you're writing about a guy like Rocker. just as an example here. And he's mm-hmm. this racist, horrible human being. Like, he's horrible. Mm-hmm. and Yeah. He's giving you all this information, so and you you know you work hard to find out who people are in this business. That's a whole thing. is trying to figure out who they are and them opening up to you and you know going to visit Earl Thomas and visit his family. So hopefully he'll open up to you. And so then a guy opens up to you and it turns out he's an asshole, and you have to write that he's an asshole. Well, his <laughs> life is going to end up worse because of that. But I don't know what the solution is to that problem. You know, right,
2: right, yeah, and I mean sometimes you know it's, it, it's different, right, because you you know some people are more savvy about what they're saying and what's going to happen to their life as a result than others. Um, yes. and so like, yeah, I feel, you, you feel bad according to that, like, or, 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 you know, you feel how you feel about the story according to that scale. Like it doesn't, and it can't prevent you from doing your job, but it's just something that you think about because you're like, Oh, there's like, this is a person here. Um, and I feel, I tend to feel that way more about like people that like have jobs. Sure. You could be taken away from them. than are like a professional athlete, obviously.
1: So. Why well, I always say to my kids, like I always say to my kids, you never want to make someone's life harder because of your presence. I say that all the mm, time. So like, yeah. I never want to complain about a bad meal, a dirty fork, bad mm-hmm. service, unless it is just so egregiously awful that yeah. I'm personally offended because I don't want someone to
2: lose their job on account of me. Oh, yeah, you know? absolutely. Yeah, no, I think about that. like, you know, you go to a restaurant or whatever and you're like, oh, man, the service is bad. But how do I know that it's not, you know, that they're backed up in the kitchen and it's not that dude's fault? Or, you know, he has, like, all these other tables and this other table is right. making it difficult. Yeah, no, totally. I'm I, i I'm very... And I think I mentioned this in one of our texts. Like, I'm very aware of, like, what my presence is. And so, I like, I'm always apologizing for, like, imp- imposing upon people or infringing upon them in any way. And so that also can carry over to work, too. Yeah, I feel you. Um, let me ask you a final thing that I'm fascinated by. You
1: mentioned um, knocking on doors and mm. I feel like over the past two years, I've knocked on more random doors than I did <laughs> in the entirety of my career for me personally. So what I always do when I knock on a door, I always bring a copy of one of my books. I always mm-hmm. write a long note. I put it by it. Cause I want, I want to be able to say immediately, look, I'm not just some cuckoo on the, at the door. My <laughs> heart is beating a million times per minute. My hands are sweaty. I have no idea what's coming, but I feel like it's a very, very effective way Of getting someone to talk
2: yeah no absolutely because most people don't it's so easy to ignore an email or a phone call you know and especially if it's a phone call like you're just a voice if it's an email you know you're just an uh you know a a few little letters in their inbox but like if you show up at somebody's house like it it shows that like you've got like you have a real incentive to talk to this person that like you've gone through this effort this massive effort to show up at their house and it's that much more serious. And so uh, it's harder to look somebody in the face and turn them away, like no matter what, like uh, unless you're like me, in which case you don't answer your door at all. But, <laughs> uh, um, but yeah, no. Um, I, and so that's why I try to do that all the time. I, yeah, I actually did that, um, you know, it's weird. I don't know if you've had this experience before, but I don't know if a lot of, that doesn't happen a lot in sports journalism because so much in sports happens away from homes and like private spaces for athletes. So it right. usually happens on their terms, and so they're they're sort of discombobulated if you show up at their house or their family's house because it's just like that you're stepping outside of, um, you know this like this artificial bubble they've got around them. Um, yeah, yeah. So I, I I try to do it at all times. Like as soon as I'm writing about somebody, I look them up in Nexus, <laughs> and yeah. I'm looking at all the people that are connected to them. You know, family member, brothers, cousins. Father, but, you know, wife, ex wife, whatever. And, I, you know, it, as much as possible, given resources and time, I'm trying to hit those people up and, and, and show up at their door or at least give them a call. And the um, well, the funny thing is, the interesting thing, we, we basically
1: have parallel lives here. I, um, I use Nexus too. And for people who don't know, Nexus is an incredible database for finding addresses and phone numbers. But the catch over the past few years is it only gives home numbers and nobody answers their home phones anymore.
0: Which oh, yeah.
1: He's am always knocking on doors.
2: Yeah, yeah. No, absolutely. Like, that's that, that's the oh, Yeah, right, because people don't have landlines anymore, and, you know, the cell phone records are, like, notoriously spotty. So, yeah, yeah. that like, going to the house is, like, pretty much the best way to ensure that you're going to be able to get it done. And, I mean, if if you can do it as a reporter, and it's a blessing to have the resources and the time to show up at somebody else's house. Like, I'm not going to make it seem like I'm special. I just had the time and I have the resources to do it. And so, like, That's why I do it. And if you can do it as a reporter, I highly encourage anybody that's listening to this uh, to do it if you can. So until someone gets shot or something. Oh my God.
1: Wait, (laughs) I got to tell you, I did a story last year for Bleacher Report about um, a basketball player named Bryce DeJon Jones, who uh, played for the New Orleans Pelicans and he was shot and killed in Dallas. And I, oh yeah, you
2: wrote that's right. I did. That was a great story, man. Thank
1: you. But I, I, I not on the shooter's door and oh god i'm sitting there knocking the door and i'm thinking i really am thinking my hands are coated in sweat and i'm thinking <laughs> the last time someone knocked on this guy's door he shot through it you know like <laughs> it's a weird thing it's weird and it ended up working out actually but it is not for that it is not i'm not saying i'm a tough guy i'm not like you know whatever rambo or anyone even remotely tough but like it is not for the faint of heart to go knock on a stranger's door hoping they talk for you to you because it, it can be very intimidating i think
2: Oh, yeah. What is your, your does your family like, you know, wife, or whatever, like she's terrified of you doing these things. Right? She like hates starting, it. And I always tell yeah, her right. I always
1: give her the exact address where I am before I do it. Just in case, you oh, know, oh, just, that's smart. Yeah. So uh, I need to start
2: doing that, too. Now, that's you just gave me a tip. I want to start doing that. Just yeah, you should. You can always yeah. text me. Joel. I'll, I'll tell yeah. You. Got, yeah. Now we got each other's number we should. definitely. Yeah. yeah, right.
1: yeah. Um, well, listen, it's been seriously uh, delightful having you here. I'm a uh, I'm a big admirer of your work. I think this stuff is great. And uh, I wish you much luck in 2018 at, uh, at
2: ESPN. Oh, man, Jeff, thanks so much. You're a legend, man. Thanks for uh, giving me a call. I appreciate it, man. Thanks, Joel. I'm going to take it
0: easy. I want to thank today's
1: guest, Joel Anderson, for joining me on Two Riders and Yang. You can follow Joel on Twitter at By Joel Anderson and read his stuff at ESPN.com. One can listen to Two Riders and Yang on both iTunes and now on Anchor.fm. Reviews are always appreciated. The music is by the sizzling MC
0: White Owl. Thanks again for joining me. Happy New Year. And remember, keep writing.